Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Matilda of Scotland! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where we are reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consort of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Oh yes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Rex Factor Pod, like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page, or email us at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you want to hear more from us, you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get bonus content. Please do, because there is no other money coming into the Alleyhood household at the moment. (laughs) Biography! So, Matilda of Scotland was born in 1080 in Dunfermline, Mm -hmm. and she was the daughter of King Malcolm III of Scotland and Saint Margaret of Wessex. Oh, no, I I think I thought she was Saint Margaret of Wessex. Who's this again? This is Matilda of Scotland. Okay, Margaret was the saint. Margaret's her mother. Mm. Uh, now, no contemporary portraits of Matilda of Scotland survive, but uh, we do have a description from William of Malmesbury, mm-hmm. uh, but perhaps slightly condescending, because he described her as being by no means despicable in beauty. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, so there's, he's saying there's lower depths to go to, in his opinion. <laughs> yes. Wow. And a uh, contemporary poet, uh, Marbodius, praised her for, unlike her noble contemporaries, avoiding the use of makeup. Right. There's so, definitely something happening there. Of course, we don't have a Heritage Limited playing card image for this episode, so do remember to send in your hashtag consort cards for the by no means despicable in beauty Matilda of mm. Scotland. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to those. Actually, <laughs> they should be fantastic. Now, confusingly... She's not actually called Matilda originally. Oh, I mean, so they've actively tried to make it more confusing. She was actually christened Edith. Oh. Which is tricky for you because we got two of the names that you're going to get confused with already. So they're saying, right, there's too many Ediths about. What what can we call her to make it easier? Well, everyone's now called Matilda. Let's call her Matilda. That's much easier. There's only two names, and the first was too confusing. So she was probably... She was christened Edith, so originally she is Edith. Um, mm. She probably takes on the name Matilda when she became Queen of England in order to fit in with what was a more fashionable, obviously, Norman name. Mm-hmm. So some just call her Edith throughout. Others call yeah. her Matilda throughout. Sometimes it's Edith before she gets married and then Matilda afterwards. That's some, some people even call her Edith Matilda, so effectively hyphenate her name and just use both. Oh, and right. in contemporary documents, she's actually sometimes styled as Matilda II, which is something that doesn't seem to have been kept up with Queen's Consort, but initially they were doing regnal mm. numbers for the consorts, so to differentiate her from Matilda of Flanders that we did last That's time. That's a fascinating idea. Hmm. I think it'd be more memorable as well. Huh. I never thought of doing that. For our purposes, I'm just going to stick with Matilda. In terms of backgroundy stuff, her father, Malcolm III, we of course reviewed in the second series because he was King of Scots from 1058 after killing both Macbeth and Lullock. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he generally enjoyed a long and successful reign. 
Now, her mother, St. Margaret, was the granddaughter of King Edmund Ironside of England. Oh, yes. So he was king in 1016, the one that fought a series of uh, battles against Canute. But when Edmund died, his uh, young children were sent off into exile, and uh, St. Margaret is his granddaughter. Mm. And uh, she marries Malcolm III of Scotland in about sort of between 1068 to 1070 after being shipwrecked in Scotland along with her mother and two siblings, one of whom is Edgar the Etheling, the last male mm. in the Royal Saxon line. Mm. Now, Edgar never marries and never has any children, so the hopes of the Saxon royal dynasty rested entirely on the shoulders of Margaret. Yeah. So she was a very influential figure at the Scottish court, imbued it with a very Anglo-Saxon character, and obviously took great pride in her Saxon heritage, and she passes this on to her daughter, Matilda. So even though Matilda is of Scotland, she, her identity is probably actually more English than Scottish because of her mother. I remember this. That was a problem with the Scottish court, yeah, because they wanted it more Scottish. Looking at it from a British point, oh, okay, <laughs> an English point of view, everyone um, in Britain would agree that <laughs> um, it was important for her to be then Anglo-Saxon because she was carrying it it all. She was carrying that royal bloodline. Oh, interesting though. I didn't really quite see the motivation before, but mm. that's yeah. Hmm. Anyway, Matilda of Scotland seems to have been intended for great things at an early age. At her baptism in 1080, when, let's get confusing now, Matilda of Flanders, so the queen consort we did last time, the wife of William the Conqueror, uh, apparently stood as her godmother. Yeah. And according to legend, the infant Matilda grabbed at the veil being worn by Matilda of Flanders and tried to pull it towards her own head. They do that all the time, though, don't they? Well, obviously, this was seen as a sign that this Matilda would one day herself become a queen. Oh. Uh, a bit um, like if a baby does the sign of a... Oops. Sign of the cross or something, and think, ah, he will be a bishop one day. Mm. Mine keeps grabbing its testicles. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so as I said, she's destined for great things, but uh, Scotland at this time doesn't really have any educational establishments of sufficient stature um, for Margaret's taste. So in 1086, mm. Matilda and her younger sister Mary are sent with their aunt to be educated at Ramsey Abbey in Hampshire, in England. That is an awfully long way for them. After a few years, they leave Romsey and go to Wilton in Wiltshire. Oh, um, yeah, her. Yeah, one which we mentioned many times, Wilton. Quite a mm. few of the consorts have spent time there, either before, during, or after there. Uh, both Romsey and Wiltshire are famed as centres of female learning, and they're in the heart of Old Wessex. Mm-hmm. So as such, they commemorate the Anglo-Saxon saints and royals, basically on a sort of daily basis. So Matilda not only gets a very good education at Wilton, but she's also steeped in Anglo-Saxon culture. She's learning about mm. all of her predecessors, the kings and queens, etc., Mm-hmm. But the fact that she's brought up in a nunnery or in nunneries does not mean that she was actually destined to become a nun, necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's just like um, cathedral schools yeah. currently here. It doesn't mean you'll be a monk. Uh, indeed, her father seems to have hoped that she would be able to secure a prestigious marriage. Numerous suitors amongst the high and mighty of Anglo-Norman England, and the most high and mighty of them all, of course, is the King of England. Mm-hmm. Now, initially, she attracts the attention of William Rufus. Yeah. So he succeeded his father, the Conqueror, in 1087, 
And uh, despite being a pretty good soldier, he is absolutely hated by clerics because he was always blaspheming with uh, curses such as by the holy face of Luca. Hey! And also a somewhat immoral court. Mm. Uh, He's also a bachelor, so it seems entirely possible that in about 1093 he may have been considering marrying Matilda. It's not like he went for her looks, apparently. More likely is the fact that Anglo-Scottish relations were somewhat strained in this period because Malcolm III basically raids the border whenever the King of England isn't looking. Mm. Um, So the marriage presents an opportunity to secure the border, appease the Saxons and obviously secure an heir, which Rufus doesn't have at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But negotiations seem to stall and Rufus suspects that Malcolm is lining up a prominent landowner in northern England as an alternative. Can I just jump in at this point? Mm. Why would the king, Malco, want to have his daughter marry someone in the north of England rather than the actual king? Uh, Because if negotiations are stalling and he thinks that Rufus isn't actually going to marry his daughter, then he thinks, well, if his plan is basically to acquire land in the north... Mm then marry a northern landowner, do it that way. Mm. So, in August in 1093, Rufus summons Malcolm to a meeting at Gloucester for discussions about homage, territory, and presumably Matilda's betrothal. Mm. However, they never end up meeting. Malcolm goes to Gloucester, William goes to Gloucester, but they still don't actually meet. Malcolm apparently resented the necessity of being treated like a vassal and Mm. being asked to do Rufus homage. And likewise, Rufus refused to receive him. Why? Well, perhaps the main reason, other than just a dispute about, you know, you need to the sort of bend the knee kind of dispute that might have taken place, it might be that Rufus revealed to Malcolm that on his way to Gloucester, he'd made an unscheduled visit to Wilton. Yeah. And he'd seen Matilda, and he'd seen her wearing the veil of a nun. And if she's a nun, that means she can't get married. So I reckon he's looking for an excuse there, right? Well, he's probably looking for an excuse, but he's also probably aware that Malcolm's trying to line up this northern landowner as well. Mm. So Rufus probably makes it known to Malcolm that he's seen his daughter as a nun, and therefore Rufus has an excuse either to refuse to marry Matilda himself, or perhaps more likely to refuse Malcolm the opportunity of marrying his daughter to the landowner. Okay. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. So, Malcolm goes off in something of a huff, but before Mm. he goes back to Scotland, he too goes to Wilton to have a look for himself and does also find Matilda wearing the veil. Right. What's she doing? Well, indeed, and that's what Malcolm asks. So, he (laughs) snatches it off her head, tears it to shreds, and then goes back to Scotland, taking Matilda and Mary with him. Mm. Still no closer to um, London and Rufus's bed, though. Indeed not, and things are getting worse still. He was still smarting from his uh, bad treatment at Rufus, so, Malcolm being Malcolm, he decided to go on and raid northern England. Yes. But unfortunately for Malcolm, he is killed in an ambush at Annick along with his eldest son by Margaret. And then, when Margaret hears the news, she dies just three days later. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, so quickly fiddle me in on who takes his place then? His second son. Well, this is the thing. So he's got other sons with Margaret. Um, the upheaval still continues because, as you mentioned earlier, the Anglo-Saxon nature of the court is not universally popular. And we see hmm. something of a Gaelic reaction. So Malcolm's brother, Donald Ban, takes the throne instead of one of Malcolm's sons. Right. 
So Matilda and her siblings are sort of holed up in Edinburgh Castle and probably actually in quite a bit of danger, as we've seen, the Scottish succession could be quite a violent process. Oh, hang on, is this the bit where they sneak out or the uncle sneaks in? Thankfully, their maternal uncle, Edgar the Etheling, is in town. So he's in there, sister of Margaret, rescues them from the castle, gets them out of Scotland and brings them down to England for their safekeeping. The Etheling, the guy that I'm obsessed with? Yes. Aside from all the other stuff before, he's also got a side gig as like a vigilante rescuer person. Indeed. Movie. I can hear it. (laughs) He's got to get an episode at some point. Yeah. So Edgar the Etheling has rescued Matilda and her siblings from the clutches of Donald Ban, and he's brought them, presumably, uh, to his estates in England. Hmm. Now, the next seven years of Matilda's life are something of a mystery. We don't really have her on record for quite a few years until 1100, when she makes a rather dramatic return to public affairs. William Rufus was accidentally shot dead whilst hunting in the Mm -hmm. New Forest, and his younger brother, Henry I, quickly secures the throne. And Mm. on becoming king, one of the first things Henry decides to do is marry Matilda of Scotland. What? Well, as in, as you're sort of suggesting there, it's quite a surprising decision on his part, really. You know, if we compare her to previous consorts and the reasons that uh, monarchs marry, Matilda doesn't have any kind of dowry. She's a landless and perhaps not exactly penniless orphan, but she's certainly not very rich. She doesn't really offer Henry much material benefit at all. Yeah. So, Well, some well, chroniclers have suggested that Henry and Matilda actually already knew each other and were in love. Uh, so Henry is tutored by a chap called Bishop Osmond, who oversaw Wilton. So it is in, it's quite feasible that they might have encountered each other at some point in the past. Mm. Uh, but the primary motivation for Henry is almost certainly Matilda's genealogy. Yeah. So he's got a reputation of being more educated than his brother, so he's nicknamed Beau Clark. And he's also the only one of William the Conqueror's sons who was actually born in England. And this is something that he very much plays up to as king to try and cultivate more popularity with the people. Mm. So for Henry, marrying this Anglo-Saxon princess, in effect, she's got the royal blood of Alfred the Great, Edgar the Peaceable, etc. This is a way for Henry to sort of legitimise his rule, win popularity with the people, and ensure that his children are the most legit that the Norman dynasty will have had thus far. Uh, However, it looked like Matilda was going to be denied her shot at glory once again because uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, forbade the marriage on the grounds of her having been a nun. (laughs) But it wasn't ever a nun, right? Well, thankfully, after an investigation into the matter found in her favour, she was able to be married to Henry and was crowned Queen of England. Uh, She proves to be a very popular queen. Because Rufus had been a bachelor, she's the first queen consort for England in 17 years. Oh, yeah. And obviously the Anglo-Saxons are very happy to see the return of the proper royal line. Yeah, like the actual legitimate line. It's not just an Anglo-Saxon. They're bound together now. Exactly. And with the birth of two children by 1103, so the future Empress Matilda Mm. and uh, William Adelan, uh, the new Anglo-Norman dynasty seems secure, and indeed a genuine Anglo-Norman dynasty now, rather than just Normans in England. Yeah, completely. That's brilliant. It was a great match then. Mm. Really clever. But unfortunately, the match doesn't seem to work out quite so well on a personal level because after the birth of William Adeline, according to William and Malmesbury, their physical relationship comes to an end. 
I don't like how informed this man is. The bearing of two children, one of either sex, left her content, and for the future she ceased either to have offspring or desired them. Satisfied when the king was busy elsewhere, to bid the court goodbye herself, and spent many years at Westminster. Hmm. They are meddling, aren't they, those archbishops? <laughs> don't like it. Now, this might not necessarily indicate a problem with the relationship. Matilda seems to have had difficulties with her first pregnancy, so it might be that once the son and heir is born, she decides that, you know, enough's enough. enough. Yeah, understandable. Mm. However, there is also evidence of uh, tension in the marriage. They might have fallen out during the investiture controversy where Matilda sides with uh, Anselm against Henry in the dispute over who's got the right to invest new bishops. Some have speculated that Henry was disgusted by Matilda's close association with lepers. Right. Just on a charitable basis. Um, and perhaps once he's got his heir, he's happy to return to his womanising ways. Yeah. Because he is the one who acknowledges over 20 illegitimate children. I mean, this... Oh, really? A royal record. That is very good. I wouldn't have that Henry down for that. Mm. Oh, Bo, Bo Clark. Bo Clark, indeed. It's always the quiet um, ones. <laughs> um, uh, do you know the comparison here that I, I can't fail to pick up on uh-huh. Diana mm. even with the lepers yeah and uh, then as soon as you know it's all sorted out they go their separate ways uh, now we've seen with uh, obviously previous uh, consorts in this series that once the king decides that he doesn't really like his wife anymore mm. send her off to a nunnery and uh, get another one she'd love that well, you'd have thought so, but despite their physical estrangement, they do actually seem to have had great respect for each other and actually develop a very highly effective working relationship. So they're very pragmatic about it, because Henry is frequently in Normandy, particularly after securing the duchy from his brother Robert in 1106. Mm. So when Henry is off in Normandy, Matilda of Scotland mm. is usually left as regent in England and given basically full powers of governance. Oh, right. Happy days. She's thus a very influential figure, essentially running the country as well as being a noted patron of the arts and a religious benefactor. Mm. Meanwhile, Henry's got Normandy all sorted out and is dealing with it there. It's a very effective partnership. And uh, living his own life, shall we say that? And indeed doing his other business as well. Mm. All right, good. Sadly, though, this arrangement is brought to a premature end as on the 1st of May in 1118, Matilda of Scotland dies at Westminster Palace, aged just 37. Oh, she did seem like a, 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 like a pragmatic sort. Hmm. Um, it seems to have been unexpected because Henry doesn't travel back from Normandy to be with her, which you might have expected him to do. Mm. And as William from Malmesbury noted, she shared in the lot of her relations who almost all departed this life in the flower of age. Oh gosh! So, so we've seen with a lot of we've seen with a lot of the Anglo-Saxon kings. Actually, none of them tend to live very long. Yeah, that's true. Still, her great popularity and her reputation for piety means that her tomb becomes extremely popular, and uh, miracles start to be reported at it. Here we go. So a cult quickly develops around it, and soon, as many papal indulgences are being granted for pilgrims to visit her tomb, as for those visiting the tomb of Edward the Confessor. Wow. That, so today, she, you know, no one has heard of this person. Mm. But Edward, everyone knows of Edward. Indeed. So she could well have gone on to become a saint, but unfortunately for her, a rivalry between Westminster Abbey and St Paul's, who'd previously argued over which of them got to keep the bones, 
Mm. And then the succession conflict that follows Henry's death means that, unfortunately, there's never a sufficient movement behind her cause for her to be accorded the sanctity later received by her mother. Oh, uh, right. I see, yeah. But, anyway, that is the life and consortship of Matilda of Scotland. Let's see how she does when we review her. Battleliness! Uh, not a huge amount to go on here, but she does show strong determination in her desire to actually become queen. Because with many people believing that she was a nun, it looked like she might not be allowed to marry Henry. And indeed, Anselm himself, the Archbishop, had been determined since about 1094 that she should be returned to Wilton. And the, when he hears of the marriage plans, he declared that he would not be induced by any pleading to take from God his bride and join her to any earthly husband. Who was that man? The Archbishop of Canterbury. Wow. And he's the most powerful church man. Indeed. And now, however, despite being a very, very pious person, Matilda clearly wants to be queen, and she's the one that actually takes the initiative, and she goes to see Anselm in person to persuade him to reconsider his position. Brave. And Anselm's uh, disciple and biographer, Edmer, records the whole process. So we've got Matilda's testimony about why she should not be considered a nun. Mm. I do not deny having worn the veil in my father's court, for when I was a child I went in fear of the rod of my aunt, who used to put a little black hood on my head, and when I threw it off she would often make me smart with a good slapping and a most horrible scolding. That hood I did indeed wear in her presence, chafing at it and fearful, but as soon as I was able to escape out of her sight, I tore it off and threw it on the ground and trampled on it. And in that way, although foolishly, I used to vent my rage and the hatred of it that boiled up in me. So it's, so it's, it's an auntie helmet. So what Matilda's saying is that basically she never wanted to be a nun and it was her nasty aunt who used to scold her and try and force her to be a bit more nunny. Okay. It's not, now, I mean, it's not foolproof, is it? No, but Anselm is also not a very easy man to shift from a position of principle once taken. He went into exile after disputes with both William Rufus and, later, Henry I. Mm. So he's a bit of a stubborn so-and-so, but Matilda succeeds in softening his stance. Hmm. Good for her. So he ordered the investigation, the investigation found in her favour, and thus he actually personally marries the two of them in 1100 with much pomp at Westminster, Mm. and then also is the person who crowns and anoints Matilda as queen. And now this independent streak in Matilda continues into the marriage. So, as we said, when we had the investiture controversy, where uh, a Lateran council issued a decree against lay investiture, i.e. kings selecting their own bishops, mm. uh, Matilda sided with Anselm against Henry. So there was a charter which uh, Matilda witnesses at Rochester, where she signed herself Queen Matilda, daughter of Archbishop Anselm. What? What does that mean? It means that she's sort of publicly saying, I am siding with Anselm. Daughter, though? Spiritual daughter, I think, is probably what she's getting at, rather than anything more scandalous. She's fluttering a bit too close to that church flame for someone who's trying to not be a nun. <laughs> well, she's got the crown now, so she can afford to... Oh, OK. Well, she can afford to try and lose it. I'm not, I don't like this. I mean, you know I always side with the king on these situations. <laughs> and indeed, there is a limit to her defiance. Her early show of support seems to have caused tensions in the marriage, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. And she does actually seem to have subsequently back down. So in 1104, she wrote to Anselm that my lack of moderation has disturbed the peace of mind of my lord the king and his nobles. 
Yeah, I bet. And then 11.05, there was a delegation of the clergy that approached her, begging for her to intercede with Henry over um, some money that he was extracting from them. And she had to tearfully reply that she would not be able to intervene successfully on their behalf. So it seems like she'd been forced to accept that she should have to take a more diplomatic approach with Henry in future, and she could only push him so far without losing her influence. Right, Okay. no more Martin Bashir interviews. Indeed, indeed. Um, However, she did continue to correspond with Anselm during his exile, and indeed she was in correspondence with the Pope. All right. Uh, Both both of them looked to her to try and bring Henry round, which ultimately uh, she did, so uh, a reconciliation was effected between Henry and Anselm. So not quite as battly battly, but you know she does continue well, to get know. involved. I think that counts as pretty good battliness in that mm. the Pope and mm. Anselm, one half of this battle, are putting her in as their chief, as their yeah. warrior into this battle. Yeah, she put her is, into the ring. Yeah, and incidentally, this correspondence represents the earliest surviving letters that we have written by a Queen of England. Rex fact. Anyway, what are you thinking then for a battle? Oh yeah, score. score. Sorry, I was thinking. Score. What's the next one? Um, <laughs> She was she was an equal to the Archbishop of Canterbury and a king. They both the Archbishop and the Pope put her put her in to bat for their side. Yeah. She stood up to the king and they eventually just sort of found their levels and settled with each other. How much of it is good battliness and how much is good subjectivity? Subjectivity uh, I don't know. I mean, I imagine she's going to do a lot of the old books, uh, <laughs> but um, I hate books. <laughs> um, just she's she just seems to be now a paid-up, full-on senior member of the royal family that is up there not only making decisions but is part of the politics and mm. is both sides see her as a valuable player. Um, and I think until recently that that's, that's people have been sort of struggling to get that recognition, but there's no big moment. Mm. Uh, five. Yeah, I was thinking of five as well. I suspect she's one of those a bit, a, to be honest, a bit like Edgar in a way, where if she needs to bring it out, she could bring it out. Mm. Like when she wants to become queen, and when she thinks she's not going to get it, she's pretty sure she's going to become queen yeah yeah but then once she is queen she's like well now i can just be nice again yeah if if you have a problem and the person in your way is the archbishop of canterbury and there's no other person to go to beyond him pope but that's not gonna happen um (laughs) and she manages to change his mind i think it's fantastic who who, and you said he was a very um stubborn Stubborn. fellow Mm. yeah so she's got it she definitely has the, um, um, whatever the word is. She's got the chops. She just doesn't chops, have to use yeah. them very much. Yeah. So that, yeah, so she, she, yeah, exactly. So that brings her down to a five. So five from you, a five for me. That's ten for battliness. Scandal. Well, we've mentioned this um, a few times already, of course, but the biggest question mark for Matilda of Scotland is the validity of her marriage. Oh, yeah. Anselm and many others at the time believed that any woman who wore the veil, even without making a formal profession, should forever be considered a nun. Well, just by putting the hat on. If it looks like a nun and sounds like a nun. (laughs) (laughs) For many people, therefore, her marriage to Henry kind of represents sex with nuns. Now, Graham, I'm a fan of sex with nuns. I I love it. But... I don't think it is. Well, let me try and convince you. 
Okay. Her maternal family, i.e. St. Margaret, are very religious in character. Mm. Her aunt was a very strict abbess, and her mother was well on the way to becoming a saint. She mm. herself is shown to be very pious. Mm. And the investigation into her status does find two separate reports of her being seen wearing the veil, once by William Rufus and then once by her own father. And indeed, Rufus, apparently, in correspondence with Anselm later on, agreed that Edith should be returned to the nunnery. Whoa. So that means that everyone else at court is aware of this. So there will be plenty of people at court who will be like, hang on, I'm pretty sure, like, five years ago we were talking about how she was a nun. Yeah. Yeah, but then she wheeled out the um, auntie helmet excuse and it all went okay. Read out the auntie helmet. And the excuse as well for Rufus is that um, she was putting on the veil to avoid lusty normans <laughs> i don't find the idea of lusty normans and all they might get up too funny <laughs> the the combination of those words is funny um and also to add a little bit of sort of suspiciousness to the whole affair the only reason that edma anselm's biographer wrote an account of the process was to defend anselm from criticism that he was receiving of having been too lenient suggesting that there were plenty of people that thought matilda rather got away with it Oh, because he before was saying she's a nun. Yeah, so he needs to have mm. shown full and... Yeah, okay. And then when he uh, gives the account of the marriage, Anselm apparently feels the need to assure the audience from the pulpit that she definitely wasn't a nun. And uh, then apparently the crowd cried out in one voice that the affair had been rightly decided and that there was no ground on which anyone unless possibly led by malice, could properly raise any scandal. It's brilliant, isn't it? The idea that they all said that as one, <laughs> nonsense, all said that as one just off the cuff without a rehearsal. They all said yeah. the same two sentences, word for word, at the same time. <laughs> and the issue is not forgotten. So during the anarchy, when King Stephen takes the throne ahead, of the Empress Matilda, so the daughter of Matilda of Scotland, hmm. Stephen's delegation that goes to Rome to argue who should be in charge, they say the Empress is illegitimate because her mother had been a nun. Oh my goodness, no way! Huh. How funny. What is the most objective uh, piece of evidence we've got? There isn't any, is it? It's all just from one side or the other. She makes it clear that she only wore it to protect against those lusty Normans and the fact that her father so cross indicates that she wasn't meant to be a nun and that definitely wasn't what she was doing in a nunnery. Oh, true, yeah, yeah. And indeed, the reason that Anselm eventually is quite happy with the decision is because his predecessor as Archbishop Lanfranc had ruled that women who were living in nunneries not for the love of the religious life but for fear of the Normans and who had never taken vows should be allowed to rejoin the secular world and get married. And also, I suppose, what what matters is that he said she's not a nun. Yeah. I mean, that's the end of it, isn't it? She's not a nun, yeah. she does marry him. Uh, so another juicy little anecdote, which I don't think was intended as one, but when I read it I thought, well, I think I'm putting this in the scandal rather than the subjectivity section. Okay. Uh, as a former knight called Walter de Lacey, uh, he founded a reclusive community in Wales but continued to wear a male shirt the chain mail shirt, that is, mm. as part of a vow that he would always be armed if ever he were to face Satan. Right, yeah. Uh, so Matilda meets him on one occasion, and having heard about his mail shirt, uh, she asks if she could touch it. So she slips her hand under his shirt oh, to uh, have a bit of a feel. He blushes, 
and uh, finds that she's slipped him a purse of gold coins. Right. Now, the story is probably intended to reveal that Matilda was making a donation without him needing to admit it publicly, which he might not have wanted to have done because he was trying to build an ascetic community. So it's a sort of a, a private donation, in effect. But there's other ways of doing it. And basically, it's like putting notes of money down a stripper's jockstrap. <laughs> it is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. So we kind of have sex with nuns and sex with monks. Oh, when you put it like that. Oh, my goodness. But obviously, arguably, not necessarily either of those things. <laughs> no, I prefer the second one. Well, each of their own. <laughs> <laughs> that is seriously juicy stuff. Aside from this, though, um, she does not seem to have been a bawdy character. Indeed, some Norman courtiers were apparently quite disgruntled that the more raucous atmosphere at court that they'd enjoyed under William Rufus became rather more sober. So gone was the long hair, the fancy clothes and the pointy shoes. Mm. And uh, William of Malmesbury asserted that she never committed any impropriety and with the exception of the king's bed was completely chaste and uncontaminated, even by suspicion. That is disappointing. Oh, yeah, that's tricky, isn't it? Because there's, there's this very prim and pro- proper possible nun, zero <laughs> scandal. Or there's this very prim and proper possible nun, so it's sex with nuns, and mm. getting all jiggy with a monk. Yeah. Four. I'm so confused. So these are very good or very bad, so it's probably somewhere down the middle. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like I, I should err on the low side still. I think I was going for three, but I think actually that whole scandal bit around the the nun, you know, the mm. fact that it had to be said in the wedding ceremony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is, as you say, it is that the the scandal is surrounding sex with nuns. Yes, that's a four any day of the week in Rex Factor. You're going to go four. I'm, I'm going to go a three and a half. I think I don't know why what that half mark less <laughs> is, but I think. The fact that it is scandalous at the time, the fact that yeah. there are these rumours and stuff is what I'm giving the points for, but I don't actually think she was a nun. Yeah, 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 that's much more succinctly put what I mean as well, yeah. <laughs> so, four and a three and a half, that's seven and a half for scandal. Subjectivity. Now, you better strap in now, because this is very much home territory for right. Matilda of Scotland. Uh, as she said, she was raised as an Anglo-Saxon princess with a sense of, sort of dynastic responsibility for preserving and restoring the old royal line. And the marriage does mark something of a merger between Saxon and Norman. It does help to reconcile the two peoples to each other and be able to move forward. It's a smart move. It didn't look so uh, promising at the start of the reign when apparently she was the subject of some mockery from Norman lords, with Henry and Matilda being disparagingly nicknamed Godric and Godiva. Why? just because they're a bit too English. Oh, right. Uh, but many lords do follow Henry in taking Saxon wives, and as you said, Matilda's children are seen as inheriting the legitimacy of both Saxon and Norman dynasties. It's brilliant. It's a bit akin to sort of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York marrying after the Wars of the Roses, the two sides yeah. combining, and then those children, everyone's invested in them. Yeah, it's really good. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle rejoiced that she was of the true royal family of England, and described her as the good Queen Matilda. So one of the things she does is helps to undo some of the more draconian measures that have been imposed in the Saxon people, such as persuading Henry uh, to repeal the hated curfew law of 1068 that was imposed on Saxons. What was that? Oh, what, like, really? They, that's ages yeah. ago. Yeah, so Saxons weren't allowed out after 8pm or to gather in groups. Social distancing. Huh. 
Uh, now, despite the bedroom uh, estrangement, she was clearly highly valued as queen by Henry. She was one of the most frequent signatories to his charters, mm-hmm. and there's only one in which she isn't the second name on the list after Henry. Oh, wow. She's an early model for the queen as intercessor, so a form of indirect power that becomes very important for later medieval queens when women are often denied access to the formal levers of power. Mm. So intercessor in the sense of trying to persuade him to mercy or to oh, yeah, be more okay. diplomatic. Mm. So in 1101, she helped to effect a truce between Henry and his brother Robert, uh, who was actually her godfather, which probably helped. Uh, so she first persuaded Henry to grant Robert a pension in return for ceding his claim to the English throne. Mm-hmm. But she then charms Robert to agree to basically grant the pension to her instead. Gosh, that's effective. Uh, she also helps to effect an alliance with the Holy Roman Empire by persuading Henry to marry their daughter to the emperor. Yeah, it was incredible. Indeed, he writes to Matilda to personally thank her for her assistance. Wow, that's brilliant. However, her value's clearly, uh, most clearly demonstrated when Henry is absent in Normandy because she is usually the one who is regent in England. Mm. And this does equate to a large part of her time as queen because Henry spends around two-thirds of his time in Normandy, or certainly once he's become Duke of Normandy. Mm. Uh, Matilda of Scotland issues 33 surviving charters in her own right, mm. and she even had her own seal. Or, 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 one of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, this is one of the earliest surviving seals for a European queen, and it's actually the first surviving one for an English queen. Fact. She presides over the Exchequer and the King's Council, and was also granted the power to judge crime by Henry. So she used to ride around the kingdom hearing lawsuits and criminal cases. So what part of being a king did she not do? Well, exactly, and she asserts a power that goes beyond that of uh, previous consorts. So in her regency in 1111, she referred to her court and that of her husband, as well as my justiciary and the peace of the king and me. So in other words, she's placing her authority on an equal footing to that of the king. So later on when you have regents, usually they would make it clear that they're acting on behalf of the king, whereas this language from Matilda Mm. is about him and me. It's our kingdom, it's our this, that or the other. Yeah, that's what I was um, trying to get to on um, battliness, but couldn't find the words, that she... When the king was away, she was the queen in in its fullest mm. sense. That as a as a child, that's definitely what I thought. When you, people said kings and queens, I thought it was like the couple were the yeah. head of the of the state. That there was a king and a mm. queen, and yeah. that seems to be actually what was going on here, like a William and Mary type scenario. I like it. I like it a lot. Mm. So she's a success at the high level of politics and queenship, but she does also tick a lot more of the sort of traditional subjectivity boxes. You'll be glad to know she's uh, very, very pious. According to William of Malmesbury, she used to walk to church every day in Lent, barefoot and wearing a hair shirt, where she would wash and kiss the feet of the poorest people and give them arms. Nor was she disgusted at washing the feet of the diseased, handling their ulcers, dripping with corruption, and finally pressing their hands for a long time together to her lips and decking their table. Decking, decking their table with food. I thought it, so- it sounded like a Scottish country dancing move. <laughs> dripping was, feels like a, a horrible, unnecessary uh, adjective there. Handling their ulcers dripping with corruption. Can maybe see where Henry might have been coming from. (laughs) 
Yeah. Have you washed your hands with soap for 20 seconds? Because if not... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going straight back to Normandy. You can carry on with this lot. Now, this last reference to the diseased uh, relates to leprosy, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems to be a special focus for her charitable deed. She found several leprosy hospitals, most notably St Giles in the Field, which was still active until the uh, the the dissolution. Mm. Her brother, David I, recalled visiting her in her chamber on one occasion, being horrified to see her washing the feet of some lepers. But so leprosy attacks uh, attracted great stigma at the time. It was sort of the most sort of, you know, scary disease for a lot of medieval people. Mm. And I think you were saying earlier about the sort of Diana comparison. Yeah, with um, AIDS. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's good. Uh, Henry granted Matilda extensive estates in London. Uh, Matilda has also granted duties on the docks in London, which came to be known as Queen Hythe because of her uh, and the ruins are still visible near the Millennium Bridge really uh, and the ward is still called Queen Hythe uh, and she also built a bathhouse in Queen Hythe which was equipped with uh, the city's first ever public toilets oh Rex Factor Fact <laughs> that's brilliant they weren't flushes though uh, no Oh. So, I mean, I suppose one might argue that... She's dug a hole in which... the ground. <laughs> yeah. And said, hey, hey, do you want... anyone need a wee Anyone can use it. Yeah, go there. No, 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 it's on me. Don't worry about it at all. <laughs> right, OK, well, that's disappointing. Uh, she also made a significant architectural contribution to London. So, after coming into difficulties when crossing the River Lee at Stratford, mm. uh, in 1110, she built England, or she commissioned, England's first ever arched bridge across the river. You are banging out Rex facts all over the place here. And its sort of distinctive bow-like shape meant that from then on, Western Stratford, so either on the other side of the bridge, became known as Stratford at the Bow, and it was later shortened to just... Bow? Huh. Wow. And the bridge was still in use until 1839, apparently. Mm. 1839? Yeah. I mean, a bit of a trigger's broom situation, I suspect. Yeah, I'm fine with that, though. And uh, intriguingly, because of her being famed for the construction of this bridge, she's one of the candidates that people put forward for being the inspiration for the fair lady of the nursery rhyme London Bridges Falling Down. Oh, right. I'm loving this. Henry's court was renowned as an early example of the 12th century Renaissance, uh, but it's now accepted that the cultural elements of this are probably due to Matilda rather than Henry. Mm. So she's a noted patron of musicians and literature. She commissions a translation of The Voyage of St. Brendan, which is a sort of Celtic odyssey. Right. Oh, sorry, I just knocked the microphone. <laughs> okay, okay but yeah, we're still recording, that's okay. <laughs> and uh, she also commissioned uh, the cleric Turgo to write a biography of her mother, which would ultimately help to lead to Margaret becoming Saint Margaret. Ah, uh, clever. Um, and her intention behind this was uh, to learn about and emulate her mother, which tells us quite a lot about Matilda's views of queenship, and indeed the fact that she clearly takes her legitimacy through this female and Saxon line. Yeah. Uh, finally, we've mentioned quite a few times William of Malmesbury, mm. but sh- Matilda is actually the one who commissions William to write his history. Oh, no way. So this is the Gesta Regum Anglorum, the lives of the kings of the English. And it's because of her interest in her Saxon heritage that she wants him to write this history, which goes obviously back to all of the Saxons. And yeah. So William's work is a very important source for both Saxon and Anglo-Norman history of the kings of England. But it's actually also a crucial text as well for learning about the queens. 
So it's because of her patronage and her interest in the female lineage, William also seeks out information about queens, princesses, female saints, nunneries, which is a subject often ignored by the chroniclers and other histories. Mm. So it's quite a lovely way in Matilda sort of brings our story full circle for this series. She's a Scottish princess, Saxon heritage, becomes a Norman queen, sets a model of queenship for her sort of Plantagenet successors, mm. but she's the one that commissions this works of history that helps ensure that the Saxon predecessors are remembered. She's the reason we've been able to do all the previous episodes. In many ways, yes. It is. I don't normally like subjectivity, Graham. <laughs> But I'm enjoying this. Uh, Despite all of this, she isn't completely free from criticism. And surprisingly, the criticism comes chiefly from William of Malmesbury. Did he get paid for this? He accuses her of being overly generous to foreigners who sing her praises and get lots of fancy gifts, as a result of which he imposes harsh taxes on her tenants in order to pay for it. Seems back to front, doesn't it? It could just charge the tenants no money at all and they can all say how she good as she is. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes, but the tenants aren't uh, bishops of uh. great cathedrals of Europe. Which does hint at a slightly crafty side to Matilda's character, sort of ostentatiously pious, but, as we saw, went to great efforts to declare that she wasn't a nun when she thought had a chance of becoming queen. And similarly, also, apparently, while she made extensive grants to religious communities... Apparently, there some historians have said that she does so in a slightly sneaky way that probably didn't cost her very much. Well, yeah, she so started she... shoving money up people's vests. <laughs> but also, something she would do would apparently make great promises to various sort of churches or communities and offers that look very generous but actually involve granting land that she doesn't technically own. <laughs> so either the king or other people then sort of have to fulfil the promise because she's the queen and her word goes Mm, but it's not actually her land so church writers obviously are very grateful and write about how wonderful she is but she never lavishes money on gifts on a singular institution in the way that we saw Matilda Flanders did with the church that she founded at Cannes yeah or Wilton or anything like that so subjectivity very very good well at least it's one of the few times that I find myself getting enthusiastic about her contribution. There's a huge amount of stuff. First non-flushing public hole in the ground. <laughs> uh, yeah. What was there? loads of stuff. I can't remember them now. Regents of England. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Stopping yeah. people, allowing people to go out. Unless you're a tenant, everything's mm. good. And you would want to be, to get back to our um, basic principles here, you would want to be her not tenant but subject I mean there's not one there's not a great big obvious thing like a she built Westminster Abbey uh, no but there are there are a lot of Rex facts in there they're all just really nice I'm going I'm going in a I'm going an 8 <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think I'm going to go a little higher I'm going to give her a 9 the only reason I went a bit lower though was I think we gave Eight to the person that we said was the baseline of queenship. Oh, uh, the last week, last time's one. Uh, Matilda of Flanders. Yeah, yeah. This seems right that it's it's building on that. Yeah, I think this is bigger. Mm. And even like the Regency of England feels a bit. And it is it is actually building on it. It's not okay. So now we definitely have the model of queenship, but she's taking it a step further. She is on parity with a king in many ways. Yeah, no, I'd go up to a nine. Yeah. Mm. The Build only reason it. I'm I was sort of 
thinking, you know, there's so much here. Does it, you know, does it even warrant an argument for a ten? And I was supposing, well, the I do feel like there's this slight sort of sneaky edge to her. I can imagine she's one of those where, like, if she was around now, loads of people would love her, but you'd meet somebody that knows somebody at the center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, (laughs) definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, she's 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 awful behind closed doors. Honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes, but all the way through Rex Factor over 10 years um, I've always said that that's fine, the sneakiness, you need that to get to where you are um, yeah. so I'm totally fine with that um, and the only reason I'm not giving a 10 is for those poor tenants of the people, that's what they say of me Graham so that's a 9 from you, a 9 for me 18 for subjectivity is that a record? Uh, it's actually the joint best we've had thus far, Emma of Normandy also got uh, 18 mm. I'm okay with that. Longevity. So Matilda of Scotland is Queen Consort from the 11th of November 1100 to the 1st of May 1118. Oh, that's disappointing. So a reign of 17 and a half years, which gives her a score of 11 out of 20, which is 23rd best for this series. You didn't tell me she died, did you? In some ways, I would have thought that would be taken as a given. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. So she's definitely dead. Definitely, definitely dead. Yeah. Okay. That's a shame. Dynasty, not the program. So Matilda has two surviving children, which gives her a score of 10 out of 20, which is 26th best for this series. Mm. Now, sadly, of course, one of these two children doesn't survive her husband, Henry, and that's William Adelan, the son. Oh, yeah, white ship business. Mm. And with Henry often in Normandy and her daughter sent off to be the Holy Roman Empress by the age of eight, Matilda was probably closest to her son, William. There's a lovely anecdote of her taking him to Merton Priory that she was a patron of um, and playing in the grounds with him so that he'd have happy memories of the place and continue as patron when he was king. You're right, sneaky. But tragically, of course, William Adeline dies just two years after his mother in the White Ship disaster. Well, at least she didn't witness it. And that, of course, leaves Henry I without a male heir, which will be very pertinent for our next two episodes. Ten for Dynasty gives her an overall score of 56.5. That's the fourth highest score that we've had thus far in this series. But, as we always say, it's not all about the score. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! I've got a hunch, so I'm. You need to persuade me quite strongly one way. Well, I mean, you know, in her favour, uh, we've seen there with that subjectivity score in particular, very, very uh, strong there. Very important in terms of queenship. We've got yeah. the bringing that Saxon royal line back into the fold. We've got her as regent of England. She's effectively ruling England for a lot of the time that she is queen consort. So we're seeing the queen on a bigger scale really than we've actually seen yeah definitely um i suppose against her does she have a sort of a stand a one standout moment or achievement that jumps out does she have a sort of star quality to her or is she just a very good queen which you know what like what i said about matilda of flanders is she just very very good at doing the job which is enough if you've got the personality to go with it potentially she does in the times when she is a regent just being basically a full-on queen mm. is amazing, given how there was such opposition to her daughter. Maybe that is the moment, just being able to fulfil that role that she's carving out for herself. Mm. 
I mean, and it's all down to her personality that allows it. And also, you know, her dramatic, it didn't come up in the factors, but she also has a very dramatic path to uh, becoming queen. You think of that year in 1093 when you've got Malcolm and Rufus storming yeah. into the nunnery. Her father killed, her mother dies, she's forced to escape from Scotland when her uncle seizes her throne, all yeah. that sort of stuff. You can imagine if it is a mini-series or something, or if, you know, we're doing the Kings and Queens as a big dramatic HBO series. You mm. know, the moment when she does become queen, okay, in a way it's just your normal queen is being crowned but equally it is kind of a culmination of something yeah exactly is the, yeah exactly that's what it feels like and then whew, finally she's there and does a blooming good job because that's always what she's been intending to do she was never intending to sometimes a rex factor winner is someone who was never destined for it and had to really mm. step up to the mark at, at a really dark time that's rex factor worthy mm. but as is someone who just Blooming knew it the whole time and does it yeah. exactly as they said they would. Also, though, to as you say, her early life to have been queen when she already failed once and not to be put off <laughs> goes back and okay, this time the Archbishop of Canterbury is against me as well. Right, well, okay, I'll have to have a little word. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't smooth. Mm. She used her she used what I think is a particularly Rex Factory characteristic to get there in the first place. Mm. So it's a yes from me, G-Man, I feel. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm interested in what people are thinking because this is not an issue for you, of course, but because last time we had Matilda of Scot- uh, sorry, Matilda of Flanders, who still has the third highest score overall and 12 points more than Matilda of Scotland this week. And obviously I said no to Matilda of Flanders, which was a bit of a controversial decision. I said yes, right? You said yes. Yeah. Well, I feel like Matilda of Scotland kind of provide some of the stuff that Matilda Flanders does in terms of the model of queenship but is a bit more the model for queenship mm. I suppose what Matilda of Scotland doesn't have is you think of that moment for Matilda Flanders when she presented William with that boat that she'd commissioned and she comes sailing into the harbour on the prow of this magnificent warship that she secretly built for him for the invasion of 1066 yeah. uh, which is a very Rexy moment so I guess Matilda of Scotland doesn't have that yeah. sort of thing uh, but I think she's really good I think this is bang on everything that a medieval queen is meant to be yeah and early um, but I also love the fact that she's bringing the Anglo-Saxons back in after all of that of the 1066 stuff the fact that that line all the people that we've been doing before they come back into the story I think there's something quite yeah I love that romantic about that uh, so I, I am also going to say yes Yes! Well done, yes, Matilda! I, and as a, Of Scotland. <laughs> I think also that, that right until the end, you saved that bit that I hadn't considered in my analysis where you said how... Um, what was it you said? <laughs> Just at the end there, you said something. Hang on. The Saxon line, the romance. The Saxon line, yeah. yes. That's pretty Rexy, isn't it? Yeah. Correspondence Corner. Anyway, let us know what you think and whether Matilda of Scotland deserved the Rex Factor. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email us at RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And you can go to our blog at RexFactor.wordpress.com to complete the polls for Matilda and all of the other kings and queens that we have reviewed. 
Mm-hmm. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever provider you use, and subscribe. And if you'd like to support us financially, then you could make a one-off donation via PayPal. And mm-hmm. uh, we'd like to say a big thank you to Nikki Kennedy, who has done just that. Thank you very much, Nikki. Uh, alternatively, if you donate on a monthly basis, then you can join the Privy Council and get access to bonus content, such as the Privy Chamber podcast that we do after each of our main episodes. Uh, and we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Grania Downey, Berry Lotter, Elizabeth Johnson, Julia Magnuson, E.F. Houston, Andrew Davies, Samuel Grant, Snow Halation, Ingrid Thewson and Jodie Stalker. Yay! Legends, legends, arise, privy councillors, and take your illustrious place in the chamber. Uh, And we've had a special request from uh, Jodie. She says, Mm. Hey guys, I hope you're safe and well. I was wondering if I could ask a humongous favour. As you and the rest of the world are aware, the coronavirus is wraking havoc on the tourism industry uh, as in Scotland as well as everywhere else. Tour guides are being made redundant. Oh, no. So to keep busy and hopefully keep a roof over my head, I have set up a page on buymeacoffee.com where for the price of a cup of coffee, I'll send you a wee story from Scottish history. That's cool. What a great idea. If you could mention this to your listeners, that would be fantastic. To find me specifically, just look for my name, Jodie Stalker. How do you you spell that? Uh, S-T-A-L-K-E-R. And she sent us a little introductory message. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Hi, thanks for the coffee. My name's Jodie, and I'm a tour guide from Edinburgh. I'm not a historian, but a storyteller with a love of history. Scotland is full of weird and wonderful stories, from Shetland and Orkney in the north, to the Borders and Dumfries and Galloway in the south, from the Western Isles to Aberdeenshire and Fife in the east. Let me take you on a Scottish adventure. That was brilliant. I'm... I'm, I'm... I think that's just so enterprising. I love it. Good work, Jodie. Uh, we've also had a couple of birthday requests. Mm-hmm. Firstly, from Cat Davies. My fiance Felix Barnes, is one of the Privy Council members of the podcast and is completely obsessed with listening to you guys. His birthday mm-hmm. is on the 21st of April and I was wondering if there is any chance that you would be able to do a happy birthday shout-out for him on one of your podcasts, please. I think he would absolutely love it if that were possible, especially as he'll have to spend the day celebrating inside, which might be a good thing considering the absolutely horrendous quarantine haircut I gave him. (laughs) Well, happy birthday to you, Felix Barnes. Happy (laughs) birthday to you, Felix Barnes. Happy birthday to Felix. Happy birthday to you, your hair looks rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Felix. Happy birthday. Uh, now, you're going to have to get your singing voice back in again because we've got another birthday request. Oh, my goodness. This one's from Leah Picken. I would like to say happy birthday to my husband, Javier, and also to my friend who introduced me to Rex Factor back in the UK, Tim Parks. Happy birthday to him, too. Oh, Javier and Tim. Well, I was going to do one of my famous raps. Oh, Okay. Um, have you and Tim? It's your birthday, man. Happy birthday, Tim. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and have you? And have you? I'll stick with. I mean, there's a reason that other song ca- 
catches on so yeah, easily. You know, yeah. It's better. Yeah. Better in many ways, better. So that's happy birthday to Felix, to Javier, and to Tim. Uh, and that is it for Matilda of Scotland. Next time, we will be doing Adeliza of Louvain, the second queen consort for Henry I. Oh, spoiler alert. Hmm. Oh, I see. So, with that in mind, we will see you next time. Goodbye. Cheerio!